Hello again, friends, and welcome to episode three of season three of MLIM, uh, My Life in Miniatures, if you're not familiar with the acronym MLIM. I just like saying MLIM sometimes. Um, anyway, uh, this is uh, a bit of a week late uh, due to continued technical difficulties on my end. They appear to be resolved. Well, I say that because I've just managed to record... Well, I've, I've finished editing a podcast, which is what I couldn't do uh, for a few days last week. Well the week before. Um, But you'll be happy to know we've got a great uh, episode in store for you today. It's a bit of a long one, but um, it's a very good one. It's with uh, Josh Van Zee from the Crown of Command podcast. Always a treat for me to talk to other podcasters. Um, But we'll get on to uh, Josh a little bit uh, later on uh, in just a couple of minutes. Um, what have I been doing in the last couple of weeks then? Well, I, I played a game first time in a while. Um, I've, I've joined this Blood Bowl League, got my first game in. Uh, it's a little bit of a warm-up game. Lost 2-1, but given my typical history of Blood Bowl, I was pretty happy with the one, to be honest. Um, I don't usually score a lot of touchdowns, um, so my Norse team did me proud there. Uh, the Norse are a lot of fun. Uh, quite bashy, a little bit fragile in a way I mean the all the linemen having block is is pretty handy um but uh having armor eight plus is not the best uh in the world I'm used to orcs so I'm used to a, a bit tougher armor there um but yeah no I, I learned a lot I had fun uh got some good plays in uh, played heavily on defense and you know all but for the pretty much the last action of the game um you know uh the seventh turn in the in the second half is uh i unfortunately couldn't make a block um i could only push a goblin slightly closer towards the touchdown line so um you know that's that's one way to do it but i had a lot of fun i enjoyed it greatly uh it was very very much um the start of something that i'm i'm really going to enjoy um and then i've been thinking about what miniatures i want at the moment because um as if you've been listening to season three um you'll know that uh, i'm expecting my first child um in a, in a few months and from what everyone tells me they're like yeah the first sort of like six months they don't really do anything so you get loads of free time like you know you have to change some nappies and feed them and it's about it really um, so like, great, okay, so I'll have some time to do some painting. And I've been sort of doing a wish list of what I want to, to paint. And uh, I'm very impressed with the new Imperial Guard range. Well, most of it. I'm really impressed with Ursula Creed. I think that's a great looking miniature. I really want to give her a go. I'm not... Like, the Rogal Dawn tank, I think, it's got a couple of problems for me. One is the guy manning the heavy stubber on the back of the turret who... Presumably, every time that thing fires, he gets yeeted off into the distance somewhere behind the tank. Um, the other one is is the hole at the bottom of the tank. And I was thinking about this, and when I first saw it, I was like, I don't really care. I mean, so what? Who looks at the bottom of the tank? But at the same time, it's kind of... I don't know. I get that it saves a bit of money, but... I don't know. Yeah, I just think it's a little, it's a little cheap. I don't know. What do you think? Um... You can let me know. Uh, well, where can you let me know? I'm on Mastodon. Uh, heresy Heroes at uh, Warhammer.social. 
Uh, I haven't been on there for a little while, so that's that's why I don't know. Uh, and I'm obviously on Instagram, uh, my underscore life underscore in underscore miniatures. Um, and I've also got heresyandheroes.com, which I haven't really updated yet this year, so I need to get back on that and, and do a bit more with that. But I'm quite a busy person these days, uh, what with one thing and another, mainly the one thing, which is the, the impending baby, but um, also very much looking forward to that. Uh, I'm also well aware that uh, over the course of me editing this podcast, all the reveals from the LVO, I'm doing this very early on a Friday morning, uh, the reveals from the LVO have come out. I'm going to look at those uh, as I list, re-listen to the podcast while I'm, I'm doing some editing here. Uh, I will let you know in the outro my thoughts on, on what got revealed. Let's get straight on to our guest. Uh, we have got Josh Van Zee, who runs the uh, wonderful Crown of Command uh, podcast. I really recommend giving this a listen if you just want to hear some really nice people talk about the hobby, um, hear some sort of real hobby heroes. Uh, we mentioned a couple of them uh, as we're, we're talking today. And um, yeah, I think it's it's a wonderful asset. If, you're, if you like my sort of stuff, if you like just listening to someone, having a chat, about the hobby while you do your own hobby, perhaps uh, it's a, it's a great one to add to your to your um, list. What am I trying to say? It's a great one to subscribe to. Um, yeah, how do you find it? Well, you just go to um, you can go to Spotify, you can go to Apple Podcasts, which is where I listen to um, YouTube. I'm sure plenty of other places. Just search for the Crown of Command. Uh, and if you enjoy it, I will pop uh, links to the Facebook and Discord. Um, groups that uh, Josh has for the Crown of Command podcast in the uh, description of this podcast so uh, hopefully you can enjoy that um, yeah I'm not going to waffle on much longer um, work starts soon so I've got to you know get ready for that and also like I say this is a nice bumper episode um, it's a bumper episode because uh, Josh is a resident of Japan at the moment I'm here in Nottingham in, in the UK uh, that meant there was quite a time Distance, quite a time delay uh, as well, although I've, I'll, I'll edit all that out. But yeah, what that ultimately means is I wanted to get the most out of this possible, so we ran a little bit long um, just for you. Uh, it's also worth noting that I'm. Uh, it was done, when was it? It was a Saturday night for me at about 11pm. Uh, I had a friend's birthday drinks beforehand. I wasn't steaming, but you know, maybe a, a tad tipsy, but... Um, it was in no way detrimental to the podcast. Uh, Josh, on the other hand, was full of beans, literally because he just had his uh, morning coffee and uh, was raring to go. So anyway, I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, yeah, this is Josh Fanzi from the Crown of Command podcast telling us about his life in miniatures. So, Josh, how are you? Mate, I'm really good. Thank you very much. Uh, again, I'm sorry to keep you up at these long hours of the evening it's it's uh, early morning here so i'm i'm fresh as a daisy and you're um you're ready for bed mate well i, I you know had a, a few at the pub and um you know I'm, I'm ready for a nice spirited chat about your history and in uh hobby and, and miniature painting and everything else um but yes i i oh, oh, now that you've said bed i i I'll put you to sleep, mate. Don't worry, John. I'll put you to sleep. <laughs> well, well, that's your challenge. There you go. That's a challenge for you. Um, it will be very exciting, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it will be. I'm looking forward to it. So I want to know, um, how did you, all those years ago, if you can cast your mind back, how did you discover 
miniatures and, and miniature painting and playing with miniatures? Uh, well, I think like many uh, many people of my uh, generation, um, I suppose at that age and maybe younger, of course, as well, uh, a little bit older, um, there was a, a wonderful commercial on TV that advertised this board game. Now, at that stage, you know, I had experienced board games like Monopoly, mm-hmm. and I think my mother got me Stratego, uh, which is quite a famous game. She played in Italy with her um, with her sister and her uh, nephew or whatever many years ago. So we played that, and so it was like more of a strategy-type game. It was pretty good, actually. And then, um, But I had never really experienced miniatures so much, apart from, you know, when I was a kid, um, going to my next door neighbor's house and playing crossbows and catapults. I don't know if you're aware of that game, but it was like a. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. It might have been a Milton Bradley game or Hasbro game. I'm not sure, but it had all these miniature models and it had like a castle and you had um, basically catapults that had like rubber elastic bands and you could shoot parts of the building off and, and the guys would fall off. And um, it was a really pretty cool game. And um, I suppose that was maybe the very first time I've ever seen a miniature. Apart from that was probably the uh, models that my parents bought me when I was a kid, just thinking back now, getting a bit of a flashback, a bit like Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix, uh, of um, is it is it Britain's, the model maker? It's from the UK. They were very expensive. They were like basically pre-painted uh, toy soldiers, Oh yeah, and yeah. Yes, you guys would know that because it's all yeah. from they're from England, and yeah. they're probably still around. I don't know, but they're probably worth an absolute fortune if I kept those models now. Probably, yeah, yeah. They're probably collectors' pieces now. But we've um, all got those though. I, I've got, I have on my shelf behind me. Um, yeah, I've got Greedo from uh, Star Wars. Great. He, uh, he was given to me when I was a little kid, and I immediately took him out of the package and drew on him with felt tip. <laughs> so he's absolutely worthless in terms of being green. Yeah. And I know I've looked on eBay, and every now and again I torture myself with it. Like, how much, if, if I had been smart enough to keep him yeah. in the package, how much would he be worth right now? I lost his Probably about two grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's something like that. Well, it's hundreds at least. And uh, yes. Well, no, it's highly but, unique. Yeah, you can you get them. You can sell them on just uniqueness alone. It's exactly. like that's but yeah, avant garde, yeah, <laughs> avant garde kind of yeah. Yeah, because I've got a kid on the way, and it's like if if I'm if I buy my kid anything that might be collectible in many years, I'm going to buy two. One that they can draw on with felt tip and you know pull <laughs> apart, and the other one I'll just put in the loft, and it'll be like that's that's the nest egg, that's the retirement fund. Yeah, because <laughs> my parents didn't. Do it. They were like, "Here's the Star Wars toy. Enjoy it." And it's like, "Okay, fine, I will." And then you look at it now, and you're like, oh, "I should have enjoyed it from afar. Um, <laughs> I should have left it where it was." But yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, but anyway, sorry. I'll carry on with yeah. No, no, no that's that's good. Um, yeah, so I suppose you know we've you know of course Star Wars came along, and you know we're obsessed with that. So you know, I suppose I've always been surrounded by. T- you know, toy soldiers in a sense. Yeah. And of course the plastic, you know, plastic army men you'd bought for two bucks down at the supermarket. And me and my friend, my next door neighbor, we had enormous amount of fun, you know, digging up our trenches and that kind of thing in our sand pits mm-hmm. with our little, you know, green Americans and gray Germans, you know, and that kind of stuff. So it's always yeah. been there, I guess. And 
um, I suppose it just took that next step in evolution when we found HeroQuest, and that was the advertisement on TV um, when I was in high school, and I was about, I don't know, 16 or 17 at that time, and my, my mother, I think, said, hey, you know, I'll get this for Christmas, and I said, oh, that's brilliant. So she got me the HeroQuest set plus Keller's Keep and the Witch Lord uh, expansions for it, Nice. And that summer holidays, I, I went to my friend's house and and uh, conned another couple of people in to play uh, HeroQuest with me. So I was a GM and they were the adventurers and we I think we spent the entire summer holidays playing all of the first uh, scenarios in the book. Yeah. And then we, we did Witch Lord and Keller's Keep. We did the whole lot. Wow. And um, it made such an amazing impression on me, that game. And... Um, yeah, it, it still holds up for me as being the best, you know, board game experience, dungeon crawl experience ever. And I just sort of just fell in, fell in love with dungeon crawling since then. And the miniatures on the side of the box were painted by Mike McVeigh, which I didn't realize till later were actual metal prototypes, not plastic yeah. miniatures. And they're very highly sought, out, sought after in the second-hand market, apparently. But, yeah, I was so blown away by it this person who could paint like this, you know, I'd, I'd painted like Tamiya models in the past, like tanks and uh, the military figurines that came with Tamiya sets. Yeah. But of course they look ghastly and they're terrible. Now I, I painted it with um, Tamiya paints and, you know, and uh, enamels and that kind of stuff. That was shocking. Mm-hmm. But then I started, I looked at the painting on this set and I thought, wow, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I thought it must be, it, it can't be real. It must be someone's, you know, actually drawn it or, painted it by by brush and they've just you know shrunk it down to look like a miniature uh but indeed it was you know painted by somebody someone very talented well uh, mike movie definitely sits in the very talented person um pool definitely yeah yeah yeah, extraordinary painter um and um so it had it had something in the box that's saying you know if you want to know more about games workshop and its products, you know, send away for a uh, free catalog and a painting guide. And I thought, oh, brilliant. So I got my parents to pay for that. I think they had to pay, like I said, you had to pay like a return envelope and it like cost about $10. And I think that that time it's quite a lot of money. So I was sort of complaining about it, how much it cost. But they did the best thing for me ever because when I got that, that was it because it came with a catalog and, of course, in the catalog had all these. And I, I hope to get that catalog again at some point because it had – the first thing you saw was third edition fantasy battle, mm-hmm. and um, and I'd never seen wargaming before. I, I didn't know anything like this existed. You know, all I knew was Hero Quest, and that was it. So when I saw all these beautifully painted models ranked up in formations, and they had, you know, it was like I think they had all these chaos demons and all this wonderful looking tables and scenery and everything. It just really blew me away. So yeah. I think that that first impression when I opened that opened up that book was that that was it like I, I just love fantasy and and it had of course 40k rogue trader epic space marine the first edition of space marine and it had um a couple other games in there as well which looked really cool and the painting guide itself was just invaluable because it, it really opened up my eyes to say okay this is how the guys do it you know they they prime and clean their miniatures first not just directly paint over them from the plastic, yeah. uh, you know, learning all these, you know, these really basic kind of techniques and how to paint properly and things like dry brushing and, um, you know, ink washing. But, of course, all those paints were, you know, they had like advertised Citadel paints, but I didn't know what they were. I've never seen them before. 
until much, uh, not too much later, I think maybe a few months later or something, I discovered in a com- comic shop um, in one of the malls in where I lived in Southport on the Gold Coast in Australia, they miraculously had all this stuff. They had the the original paint set from Games Workshop, the creature monster set, and um, I don't know how I paid for them, but I, I got them somehow. And um, and brushes, of course. I don't know what I did. I don't know what I used for brushes. Actually, it, what they weren't Citadel brushes, so they must have just. I just must have used art brushes or something I picked up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that was it. It just sort of set me off on this on this whole path of uh, miniature painting. I really wanted to learn everything about it. Um, now, this is of course pre-internet, way before pre-internet. This is way pre-internet internet yeah. era now. So. Um, you know, the level of communication or the level of exposure you could have to other people who were in the hobby was very minimal. So I only had myself. <laughs> so yeah. I was the only person really interested in what's called this, all this stuff, kind of stuff. No one else in my friend friends group at school were at all interested in painting. Uh, they were more interested in role-playing and um, that kind of stuff. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean that that basically was the sort of the catalyst of where all this sort of came from. Yeah. I mean it's so it's it's fascinating for me because um a few years ago I used to work for Games Workshop and um Australia and New Zealand were always kind of a they were sort of a, a, a good problem to have, but they were it it was slightly problematic because there was no like the, it costs so much to get stuff over to australia so yeah how was it did you i suppose did you feel as an australian into the hobby left out or that you were always a a little bit behind and waiting for things or how difficult was it to get hold of i had no yeah I, i have no way of sort of comparing it because basically it was kind of like if you were lucky enough to find it you could get it and if it was there on the shelf and you had the money, you could buy it. So there were, it was very limited. In and now I'm talking about, you know, 89, 90, 1990, this era. Okay, so um, you know, Games Workshop was relatively new to a lot of people, but you know, that's only from what I can gather because I didn't really know many people who were involved in the hobby anyway. So there were only there was only one distributor, and that was in in Queensland. I'm talking about. And that was a shop in Brisbane City. Yeah. And um, they stocked everything. You know, I finally found that place. I I found another guy who, um, Marcus, my good friend Marcus, we're still good friends today. And, um, yeah, we we took these, you know, these um, uh, these trips up to Brisbane and we would go to the shop and we would just, you know, just, just stare at this wall of, you know, blisters and, box sets and all this kind of stuff was amazing. So because yeah. you could only see it in catalogs and white dwarf magazines, you could never be you could never walk into a games workshop store. That 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 came much later. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. so we went on these pil- pilgrimages up to Brisbane and we would come back with a few miniatures and then uh you know to to enhance our games or maybe buy a whole new box set of something to play. Yeah. Nice. Well well I mean, it, it is quite interesting. I mean, you know, over here in the UK, you've got a, you know, every big town has a GW store or Warhammer store these days. And, you know, now that I live in Nottingham, um, obviously I've got the, it's very easy to go to the even the Forge World store. So it, it's interesting to hear how everyone else finds this sort of stuff, really. Because, it, it, you know, when, like you say, that in, or if, in all of Queensland, there's one place where you could actually get to, 
to pick this stuff up. It's quite, it's kind of impressive that this even became part of your life, really, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the chances. And I've met, so, like through my podcast too, I've met so many people in very similar circumstances. You know, they were in a sort of midtown or very small town in, in um, Midwest America or they were in Canada, you know, or in some European country where it's, you know, it's very isolated. They didn't have any exposure to this kind of stuff, but somehow they managed to find it through a magazine they picked up in the newsagent or, of course, White Dwarf magazine. And, of course, White Dwarf magazine was their their biggest way of reaching um, many people all around the world yeah. uh, that they can come in contact with um, their miniatures, their games and that kind of thing. And, uh, boy, oh, boy, oh, do I miss those days. I mean, you know, White mm. Dwarf was just it. You know, it, it just had everything. It had, had all the game systems and all the the personalities behind the games and the creators, the um, the painters, you know, all the models came out in the catalogs, you know, like the catalog pages at the back. Those, you know, those were the days, you know. And, um, and of course, the only other way you could get them was through mail order. And um, that and I sort of laugh at now as I look at those old white dwarves because I had like, you know, you had to write out this order form. Mm-hmm. And if you were smart enough, you would you would tally, tally up the correct amount of money at the end yep. and then write them a check and then yep. send it away and praying that you'd actually, they'd actually receive it, that you'd actually get your stuff and yeah. you hadn't made a mistake. And they had, <laughs> otherwise I'd have to send another mail to see it to another, uh, like a mail, uh, send a letter to you, sorry, and say, Hey, you know, you've, you've, you've missed one P on this, on this, on this check. You need to write another one and send it back. Yeah. I just imagine all the horror stories and dramas that would have been involved in doing that. But yeah. Uh, well, and also I know from people who, uh, at the time were working in those factories that, well, in the, in, not the factories, but the, dispatching place and it was just i it sounds like nerd heaven it's just this enormous warehouse full of shelves that have little drawers with all those individual pieces like you wanted backpack c for your orc knob or whatever it was and there would be one guy who'd get your order and he'd be like right this guy wants three of them okay and he'd go off and he'd find the shelf he'd he'd put it down the the lane and he'd find the little shelf and the little drawer that was there and he'd actually pick out three of those little backpacks and he'd put them in a package and send them off and yeah it's uh it's, i mean for all the wonderful convenience of these days there is some sort of weird mysticism about those times as well where it was just yeah you you did actually have to put in you had to write down the the number of the component that you wanted and they'd actually go and find it for you in person. That's 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 another thing. Before the internet, you had very little knowledge or, you know, any way of knowing uh, mm. what was coming. And that that was the beauty of White Dwarf magazine because it would unveil all these little snippets of news yeah. in the front section of the news section. Maybe you could see a new model they're working on for a new range of figures mm-hmm. <clears throat> or something like that. Or there was, there was murmurings of a new game system coming out. I love all that. I love all that time. Now it's all sort of just thrown at you at a million miles an hour through various different channels. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it's a totally different experience. You know, even yeah. like movies. You know, like when I sort of think about when I was a kid, it was a movie. You'd see the trailers in the in the cinema, and that was it. You know, you just see this very short one minute trailer, and you'd be so excited to go and see the movie. But nowadays, you can see everything. Yeah, you know, too much. I think everything's it revealed is. too much. There's it, no, there's no um, mystery to it. 
No, it's sensory overload. I agree. Mm. It's um, yeah. Okay, well, back on Terra Quest briefly. While you were were GMing this game, did you have a a favorite model from that that set? Uh, definitely the dwarf. Yeah, I, dwarf? I was definitely I was magnetized to dwarves. I don't know why, but there's something about them the you know the visual aspect of them <laughs> being squat and being very broad and um, mm-hmm. uh, these big long beards and. Yeah, they, they they just really appealed to me uh, instantaneously. So I wasn't never an elf person. I was never really, um, you know, an empire type of guy. Yeah, definitely the dwarves, and they they really were the focus of um, of my um, my model collection and uh, painting wise. I was really focused on them. Uh, well, we'll move on to some of your dwarves next, actually. Um, so, tell me about your. Your enjoyment of well, Marauder miniatures in general, but um, yeah, tell me about the Dwarf Thunderers. Ah, uh, the Dwarf Thunderers. Um, let's see. Well, they were the very first models I picked up um, in the comic store, the same comic store in Southport. I forget what it's called now, actually, that shop. But anyhow, I walked in there and they had a big rack of Marauder miniatures. Wow. Now at this stage I'd found Hero Quest. I hadn't I I'd sent away for the catalogues and that kind of thing. And I think it was at the same time when I found the paint sets on their shelf. And this is the pretty much the very first day I found this comic shop. Mm-hmm. So in front of me they had like just one corner dedicated to Citadel miniatures and um Ralph Arthur and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they had a nice big rack of Marauder miniatures. Nice. And I found these dwarves and they were just beautiful. And I thought, oh man, I've got to have these. And I found an ogre. Also, as well, and I grab one of those, and um, yeah. Ever since then, I was just you know totally in love with dwarves. I think they're just and Ali Morrison's dwarf range. I think it's unrivaled. I don't think any collection has ever come close to touching that. I agree. Uh, I agree. I, I, I agree. Um, you, you'll be happy to know Ali Morrison is a listener of this podcast. Um, oh, that's great! Fantastic. Well, um, hello, Ali. Uh, he's he's an old mucker of mine from Games Workshop, and uh, I was really nice. Uh, the last Golden Demon uh, that we had here in the UK, um, one of the entries, and I, I'd love to be able to say who the ent- uh, entrant was. They'd essentially picked about sort of twenty old Marauder dwarves and yeah. sort of set them up as a little diorama. Ah, that's Paul Robbins. Oh, there's Paul Robbins. There you go. That's yeah. fantastic. Well done. Um, and it's imprinted on my mind, mate. No, nice. imprinted on my mind. Well, I got to. <laughs> I'll forget my own name, but I won't forget his. Good. So I got to walk Ali around the cabinets because I had a few things in. I was like, "Oh, let me show you what we'd, what I've got in." And he was looking at. He was dutifully looking at my bits and pieces, and he was sort of saying, "Yes, it's very good." You know, sort of like. He was being kind to me, saying like, oh, that's well done. Well done. You've got that in there. And then as soon as he saw that bit, he was like, oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. I haven't seen that in a very long time. <laughs> and he was, like, he was just, he spent about five minutes staring at that thing. He was just like, oh, I remember doing that. I did that sword there. there. That was that was my favorite sword that I ever did. And it was like, yeah, yeah, that's great, Ali. But come and look at my stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. Let's, <laughs> let's spend some time looking at my stuff. It's really good. <laughs> um, but no, he'll be thrilled that you you found Marauder miniatures over in in Australia as well. Because um, uh, for for listeners who are not necessarily familiar with uh, the name Marauder miniatures, um, 
long ago when Citadel was still uh, a very young company and Brian Ansell was running the uh, miniatures side of Games Workshop, I think uh, I th- I've got a feeling it was still in the days when Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson were running the business, but Brian Ansell was running the miniature side of things. Um, they uh, subsumed a business called Marauder Miniatures, which was Ali Morrison and uh, Trish Morrison, who is now Trish Cardle, uh, who were husband and wife. Ali is still a uh, one of the longest-serving um, Citadel Miniatures designers. Trish has gone on to... Uh, she worked at Forge World for a very long time, and she's gone on to create her own... Uh, miniatures for other companies now as well uh, she is she specializes in big amazing monsters but marauder were where a lot of those classic designs came from they were uh, the originators of well i i would argue thunderers were amongst them wouldn't you uh, yeah i think so yeah 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 um yeah they had a wonderful range and not only doors but they they encompassed everything. Everything that Citadel didn't produce, Marauder found a way of uh, making for the for for the for the armies they had for Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, even 40k, they did some wonderful space orcs, and I don't know if Trish. I think Trish designed those ones. Actually, they're just gorgeous. They just fit in beautifully with um, with Kev Adams' um, space orcs at the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, their dark elf range was amazing. Um, yeah. Even their orcs were were really nice as well. So even their elves are good, you know. So they had just they had this knack of just producing some really wonderful ranges, and um, yeah, and I think yeah, I think for me, dwarves were just the height of that. I think they were just un, you know just perfect, and every every single every single one he designed were just you know incredible. Um, all had their own little personality to them. None were looking exactly the same. So I, I've spent quite a long lot of time in the last few years uh, trying to collect all of them. Yeah, and you you mentioned the word personality there. Marauder definitely had a touch of personality about them, didn't they? they were, they were there was something about each miniature that was just very. Um, it wasn't just Soldier A. It was yeah, Soldier yeah. who's smoking a cigar and got a moustache, and he's probably got a family back home, and he comes from Ostland, and he does this stuff, and he's, you know, he's very. <laughs> Each yeah. one had that little bit of personality that you could really gel with and really sort of connect to. Yeah. And I I don't know, it's, it's something like I miss that, I think. It, it's it's something that it's wonder and I'm not knocking current system miniatures because they're all incredibly well done, but those days of Marauder and even the old Sister stuff, you got a personality with each miniature, didn't you? I think so, but yeah. then you can look at some of the old regiments of renown yeah. stuff for like second edition. I think it was Warhammer Fantasy, and they're all just like you know just cookie cutter type miniatures, all exactly the same. Yeah. And it was only the command groups that were different. But yeah, I suppose they go through all different eras. I mean, you know, Citadel miniatures did that. They had you know uh, the the Perrys and Kev and um, you know yeah. Ali and whoever else making. You know, one dolly, and then out of that dolly, they'll produce you know five or six different variants for your regiments, which we were very spoilt. I think at that time, I mean, for them to be able to say to the to the guys, "Hey, you know, you can make 
16 variants of this particular regiment of warrior, you know, just go for it. I think we're very, very spoiled at that time. Um, I think, I think of the old war gamers, I think they only had one type of, you know, one regiment model holding, uh, you know, a rifle or whatever. And that was it. There was only like one pose, but I think we were very, very lucky, um, during that time because it was almost like having a role playing, you know, yeah. set of miniatures really. Um, cause I think role players were very much, uh, used to that. But as war gamers, you had very much, you know, maybe two or three different variants you could choose from. So, yeah, I think we're very lucky at that time to have so many different, so much choice. We did have a lot of choice. And so I wonder why, why did you go for the Thunderers in particular? Because you, you called those out to me when I, when I asked you for your models, your favorite models. Why the Thunderers? Uh, I think that were just the first thing that I sort of picked up off the shelf and maybe I had seen them in a white dwarf because white uh, Marauder miniatures had their own little catalogue pages in there. And you can ask Ali for me too because I don't know who painted those models, but they're absolutely beautiful. And I was just mesmerised with the um, the standard of, of painting quality on those figures, the samples they had for the for the white dwarf magazine. So maybe it might have been that, that it sort of just, you know, triggered, oh, I know those miniatures. I saw those in the White Dwarf and I'll definitely get those because I love those dwarves. Maybe it was because of that. Maybe it was because just a lack of range. Maybe someone already scooped up all the Troll Slayers. They're the ones I really wanted. <laughs> I think they were probably the most popular of all the miniatures they had there of yeah. Marauder Dwarves. The Slayers, you know, were just it. They were, yeah, they, those Slayers were quite fantastic. And I'm sure... Um, as soon as this podcast goes out, Ali will send me a message being like, oh, actually, I painted those. I'm quite proud yeah. of them. <laughs> um, and now I'll get a message saying your impression of me is crap. But um, <laughs> but you also you picked up some ogres as well. And, and dwarves and ogres don't necessarily go together as an army, but what was they it? They don't. No. You can tell I'm not a war gamer. I'm just a collector. So at that stage, it was like getting, like I said, you just get whatever you can get because whatever you can get your hands on because it was so so limited in what you could what you could find and and um if you had the money and you know you're in the right place at the right time you might as well pick it up so yeah i was just basically just getting anything i could and and the the, the ogres which i have not seen on the second end market I, I don't know if they're very rare but they were multi-part so basically you had like the the legs which are one part the body like the torso of the the model as a second part, and I think that that came in two parts actually, the front and back, and then you had the two arms which are separate and the head was separate. So and it came in a blister pack, and I don't know if you remember those, but they were just gorgeous models, um, absolutely beautiful. And I don't know if um, I think Ali designed them, but maybe Trish did. I'm not sure, but they were just br- brilliant, and they had maybe four or five different variants of those you could get. Yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, they're very, very different from ogres these days. They're considerably smaller, for one thing, but they're um, they were beautiful pieces, weren't they? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, great models. So, and um, I would, I probably would have got more if I had the money, mate. So, yeah. I think I, I remember those days as well. I, I think back to so I uh, I tend to measure things by forty k and second edition forty k was when I got into the hobby, and I oh, I, yeah. think, I think back to those blister packs and it's like oh if i could have picked up just one or two more of those and kept them it's like greedo again it's like if i could have kept him locked away and uh you know ne- never touched him that would be, uh... <laughs> actually and that that reminded me too i was just thinking about that and that just triggered a memory i 
first, the very first time I ever saw Citadel Miniatures, this is before HeroQuest too, I went to, I don't know, I had a Canadian guy at my school and he said, and maybe, no, maybe I had HeroQuest that time, sorry. Maybe I did have HeroQuest and I was interested in, in miniatures and that kind of thing and he found out about that and he said, oh, I've, I've got a lot of these miniatures and come back to my house with me and I'll show you. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I went to his house one day after school and he had all these second-end Marines. He hadn't painted them. He just took it out of the blister and he basically just put them into the – I don't think he even glued them together. I think he just put them into the bases and he had them sitting on a shelf in his room and he didn't know anything about the game. I think he just went into that comic shop and that's that's how I found about that how I found out about that comic shop. He told me where it was and where to find those models, and that's how it happened. So that's sort of a flashback again coming now. Yeah, no, You're channeling right. me, mate. You're channeling. I'm, I'm glad. I'm prompting some memories. Yes, good. That's wonderful. Yeah, so yeah, that was really good. Yeah, I just remember that. Yeah, so, well, okay. So let's move on from um, the Marauder days. Um, mm. Where does your love of night goblins come from? Uh, again, through White Dwarf magazine. So I used to sit on on the on the bus home, going home, uh, and I'd flip through the magazines. And I think at that stage, it was like the fourth edition set for Warhammer Fantasy had just been released, and I did buy that set. I, pre- previously to that, I did buy the um, uh, the uh, third edition rule book, but it was a beautiful book, gorgeous pictures, and I, I loved looking at the photographs of all the the model terrain setups and everything. But like the rules and that kind of thing were just so way above. I've never been, I never played a war game, so this is very confusing, and I couldn't work out how to play it. So when the fourth edition set came out, it had um, Rick had you know very cleverly uh, designed this rule book that was very easily laid out, mm-hmm. and it came in uh, I think two books. One was like a beastry book, and one was the rule book. And had like a little armies uh, booklet uh, with it as well, and it very, very clearly and very well organised laid out how to play a game. And I think maybe they had like a uh, that's right the um, the scenario too for it as well, which contained uh, all the all the models you got with the set. So from there, it had the the goblins in there. Of course, it had the night goblin archers and it had the goblin spearmen. But I um, I gave those to a, a friend of mine at school in the hope that he would play Warhammer with me. So he's, he was interested in the goblins. I was interested in the high elves. So, uh, but unfortunately, yeah, I think he started painting them up, but then he we just never got to get to play the game, and I think he probably just threw them in the bin or something. I don't know what happened to them. Okay. Probably let the cat, cat eat them. But um, but I, I had I kept my high elves, and I would look through the cat, the pages of White Dwarf and all these beautiful metal night goblins, which were just awesome. And... Um, and uh, but it wasn't until many years later, until I came back from the UK, uh, that I had a chaos army and for fantasy battle, and I wasn't really all that. I wasn't really enjoying playing them so much. So another friend of mine, Jason, he said, "Well, I've got a night goblin army. Do you want to trade it?" And I said, mm. "Yeah, okay." So I had a look at his stuff, and he had quite a lot of metal night goblins, which were perfect. And I said, "Yeah, let's do it." So we traded that, and I started painting these little guys, and they were so cool to paint, and I loved all the character to them. The faces were amazing, and 
And then I started getting into playing the, the playing them on the tabletop, and I thought this is so much more fun. You know, they're so crazy, so zany. You know, everything could go wrong. You know, just one di- one one roll dice, you know, one bad dice roll, and it's all over. And I just love that kind of living on the edge, kind of playing with them. And um, yeah, they're much more fun than chaos. So yeah, that's basically how my love of Night Goblin started. Nice. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. I was in. Um... A few months ago, well, uh, before Christmas this year, I, I uh, my partner and I went to Florence, and I found a, a hobby shop in Florence in Italy, <laughs> and went in, and they had loads of, I mean, if I had the money, just the some of the old stuff they had, they had loads of like, box still in the cellophane Mano War miniatures, wow. stuff like that, and That's I was cool. like, oh, I want all of them, but. <laughs> they're like 55 euros for two ships oh jeez <laughs> like, yeah, can't quite but i yeah. did end up one of the things i ended up picking up was a night goblin shaman which was it's not one of the really old ones but it, it or not one of the old ones it's probably still about 20 years old hmm. um but they do just have that character don't they they're just so like they're fun they're fun and they're funny and they're weird yeah. They've got that personality that it just makes it special, doesn't it? I think so. I think I think, and that's how the game was intended to be. I think it, you know, uh, you know. I think Rick and the guys when they devised Warhammer Fantasy, and especially the fourth edition set. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think it it wanted to appeal to younger younger kids. And by doing that, they they had all these weird and wacky rules in the army books and that kind of thing. Hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the goblins fit in perfectly with that because, you know, what's more entertaining than seeing a fanatic whirl out of a unit and smash into the enemy and then come back and smash into you and then, you know, the uh, the, yeah. the doom diver uh, being propelled by some ma- massive uh, rubber band into the air and, and uh, you know, screwing down and, and uh, screw driving down into the into the unit with his um, yeah. spiked helmet, all that kind of stuff, and the giant, and you know, all the special rules that a giant had. The trolls were always stupid, and they could do nothing. And it brought all these wonderful elements into an army that um, you know it really felt like you're pl- you're having a good experience rather than a very well drilled you know high elf army or chaos army that just did everything you wanted it to do, and it just wasn't as fun. You're absolutely right. You're you. So I'm glad you mentioned the Doom Diver and the Fanatics in there because they were very much back in those days. They were, they just made that army so interesting, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And they had like all the all the war magic spells and all that kind of stuff. Now yeah. you could say you could say, well, Josh, you know, dwarves are really well drilled and you know all that kind of thing. They do everything you want them to do. But yeah, the dwarves had something really special. They had. Um, Incredible characters like Thorgrim, Gotrek, and Felix. Um, they had, you know, rune smiths on their anvils. They had the the king on the throne. They had these really iconic uh, looking image imagery in their army, and um, beautiful models. And uh, yeah, this wonderful sense that um, yeah, these little short guys were going to just, you know, just hanging out to the end they're gonna you have to kill every single one to everyone to a man basically before they fell and yeah i really love the the stories and of course bill king was a big part of that as well in the development of the stories and the characters and and the lore of warhammer um you know he, he played an instrumental role in all of that and i think all those stories uh together with mark gibbon's incredible artwork and john blanche of course we can't understate how important he was of course um 
uh, with that as well. And then the rules writing, you know, you had like um, Rick, of course, and uh, Nigel Stillman, all these uh, really, you know, ingenious guys with their weird and wacky uh, rules in there. And, um, yeah, it just, it just made for a wonderful experience on the tabletop, I think, unlike anything else. I think you're right. I, I I really think you're right. It was unlike anything else. It was um, there were some great minds that were very much um, heroes of their time, I suppose. Um, but so, do, do you have a particular favourite Night Goblin from that old those those old days? Uh, actually, the Squeak Hoppers uh, were probably my favourites. Um, there's something about that sort of squished look of the, the the squig and the crazy goblin on top hanging on for dear life with his, you know, club or mace or something he's hanging on to. I just love those models. I think they're absolutely gorgeous. Um, the shamans too, uh, one in particular, I really love that model. Um, Gobbler from Scarsnick and Gobbler, the character, he's just incredible. They're great, um, yeah. But, yeah, I think all of them, you know, all of all of those, or the entire range, and I talked to Kev Adams about it too because I email him on occasion, um, and um, and he he actually said that it was the most fun project he ever worked on at Games Workshop, and at the time I think I think Brian Ansel was still there, and he sort of gave him full, you know, basically just gave him all the freedom he wanted in creating the Night Goblins, nice. and um, yeah, it was really nice to hear that he, you know he enjoyed that the most out of all the, all the time he worked at Games Workshop. The Night Goblins were his favorite. That's that is wonderful to hear because I mean they've they've left such an impression that you can pretty much do an entire army of them in Age of Sigma these days, and that's probably testament to that. But okay, well, moving on from your well, your your night goblins specifically, uh, let's talk about Rackham miniatures and their dwarves and goblins, and and what do they mean to you? A lot, you know, because. Um... I, I sort of came through a time of Games Workshop where they just started, you know, this is like late 90s when 6th edition fantasy was coming in, 3rd edition 40K was coming. I didn't really like the design and I didn't like the art direction they went in. Uh, the miniatures had changed. It came very dark and grim and, and it just wasn't for me. So I kind of, I sort of just left Games Workshop for a while and then it wasn't until later until someone introduced me to Rack and Miniatures and this is back back in the 90s, I think, late 90s. And then um, I was just blown away by the paint jobs. Like, the, looked at the back, they had like these little cards on the back of the blisters where the, the studio painter had painted the model. And I was just like, wow, yeah, this is just light years ahead of what I've seen before. And I thought Mike McVeigh's stuff was incredible, but this is just like, just on another level. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't until later that I found Hybrid, uh, which is a board game they released. And... Um, I ordered that and I found the models. The models are just incredible. Uh, really blown away by the quality. The production level was just way above anything I'd ever seen before. And that sort of just spiraled into this massive obsession with um, Rackham Miniatures and the company. And again, it was one of those things that like like the old Citadel Miniatures is very hard to find. It was sort of like in reverse. So basically when I first found Citadel Miniatures, it's kind of the same with Rackham Miniatures, a very obscure line of miniatures, uh, very hard to get. But if you would, if you were, um, you know, keen enough for them, you'd find them somewhere, or order them from France. So I ordered, started ordering the goblins and the um, the dwarves because uh, those races, that the model designs in particular, were the most appealing to me. And of course, they all came with these weird and zany rules again. So uh, that that brought, and even though I wasn't 
much of a player. I just love the miniatures, love the catalogs. I could pour over those for hours and hours and hours looking at these incredible paint jobs. Um, I, I still think, you know, the, the studio painted models, are some of the, the finest models ever painted on earth, like by anybody. I, I, I can't, yeah, I just can't uh, overstate how good, how well they were painted um, just by sheer talented Frenchmen. Yeah. Yeah, just incredible. Yeah. Nice. Well, that, that's great here. And, I mean, did you, uh, I mean, obviously you mentioned to me dwarves and goblins, but did they end up sort of permeating your your own dwarf and goblin armies quite a lot with those? Up for my, for my Games Workshop ones? Yeah, no, no, no. They will, they'll never intermix. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, fair enough. That's yeah. No, they won't. They won't. The the the, the dwarves from Rackham and the goblins from Rackham are they're in their own unique universe and style and scale, and and the painting, like, you know, the painting applied to those miniatures are completely different to what you know. I sort of I sort of focus on a more of an era style of painting. So the the, the dwarves and goblins I have for Warhammer and 40k are painted from that time and the rack and miniatures I try to emulate the styles they had at that time as well from from the French painters. So yeah, uh they they totally look they look completely different. Um and uh they're both unique and beautiful in their own kind of way. Mm. Even though some people find them absolutely hideous and uh you know I've heard a lot of people who don't like Rackham style and that kind of thing, but yeah, I just love them. Yeah, good. Well, no, that's nice to hear. That's, you've got your own, they've got their own little space in your hobby. That's quite nice. Yeah. I appreciate this maybe a, a, a fair bit later in your hobby life, but uh, the Crown of Command podcast, um, mm-hmm. named after an aspect of one of my most sort of troublesome games in my own headcanon, uh, Talisman. <laughs> Um, that's right yeah yeah um how how did you start doing a podcast how did the crown of command come to be actually funny funny you mentioned that crown of command being part of talisman i actually have the second edition talisman and it didn't occur to me later that of course it was it was the probably the first or the origins of that that um that magic item or the word came from talisman i actually based it off the magic item because i use it for my goblins a lot there's a magic item in fourth and fifth edition it was called the Crown of Command. It gave you leadership ten, mm-hmm. and it, it created this leadership ten bubble around your leader, your general. Yeah. Um, so that's where that came from, basically. And um, and I sort of threw a few names out there, but I think the Crown of Command were, was the best. And I think the other guys, I, I sort of threw out to the other guys that I had in my gaming group, and they said, "Yeah, Crown of Command sounds good." So I said, "Okay, let's do that." Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of originated because Paul, um, one of the guys here in Japan, my friends in Japan, and he said one day. Uh, do you want to do a podcast? And I said, yeah, that, that sounds good. And this is during, I think, um, when COVID first kicked off, mm-hmm. right? So this is like 2020 sometime. And before then, I'd sort of thought about doing a podcast, but I wasn't really sure how to do it. And I, you know, and I'm not a I'm not a very tech savvy type guy, so uh, I had no idea because I, I used to be a really big fan of the uh, the Meeples and Miniatures podcast, mm-hmm. and sadly that ended. Um, uh, due to the death of um, one of their um, uh, one of the co-hosts there, um, uh, sadly. So, uh, you know, I sort of had this, you know, that, that that sort of left a big hole in my um, uh, listening, you know, listening to podcasts because I didn't have many to listen to hobby wise that I was really interested in. So it was sort of on my mind, and I sort of asked guys on the Facebook group at that time in the fourth or fifth edition Warhammer group, you know, 
what were your origins in the hobby? And I got this overwhelming response from people telling me, you know, how they first found you know, Games Workshop, how they first started in the hobby, blah, blah, blah. I thought we were really good to have all these stories in an audio format. Definitely. Because the, um, the nature of Facebook is that, you know, the post will go up and then after a couple of days it'll be lost in, in, a, in a ream of various different um, posts. Uh, so I thought it'd be good to encapsulate all those stories in a podcast. That way it will stay there forever and uh, people can find it, you know, uh, down the line. So, But I didn't know how to do it. And then Paul said, you want to do a podcast? I said, yeah, that sounds good. So he said um, – Okay, but I don't want to do any of the editing and all that other stuff, basically. Yeah. And I said, okay. So we did one show together, uh, and I think Paul was quite kind of drunk or something like that when we did it, and we recorded it. And then after that, he just said, "Yeah, I don't want to do. I don't want to be because maybe he was very busy at the time, or whatever at work or whatever." He said, "I don't want to have any responsibility of of getting this, you know, up on the air kind of thing." So we left it at that. Because I didn't know how to do it, so I said to my sister, "I said, do you know anything about podcasting? Do you know like a website I could I could use to do a podcast on?" So she she showed me this Anchor FM website, and I thought, "Oh yeah, it's free, and you know you can just record it, whatever, blah blah." So yeah. I thought, "Okay, I'll, I'll start it and I'll try try to do it myself." And um, and I got my mate Justin, another guy here in Japan, to help me out with that. So we did the first episode together. And um, we uploaded it, and that was pretty much the start. And it sort of just rolled on from there. I sort of got I got guests on from uh, various different places of the world that wanted to come onto the podcast to talk about their history in the hobby. And that's what it really was. It was really much a community focused. How did you get in the hobby? Um, yeah. Those kind of stories. I really enjoyed listening to that because I I really enjoyed listening to that on other podcasts. You know, they always ask that question. You know, before we get onto the interview how did you get into the hobby and i really enjoyed that part more than the actual interview itself and that's how it started mate yeah nice well it's a, i've been listening for a few months now uh, it's one of the reasons why i asked you to be on this podcast and it's, it's thank you very enjoyable to see it's it's quite um as well as having those sort of origin stories which is something i try and do with this podcast as well obviously but uh it, it as well as having those it's quite a nice sort of general it's got a nice sort of feeling of just these are people who are really into the hobby who are chatting about the hobby it, it's and then every now and again you'll get a really good guest on because uh well just before christmas you had andy chambers on which yep. uh always good to hear from andy chambers um i uh, I, I'm sure you do as well. Um, those days of White Dwarf, where it would be Jervis versus Andy, um, yep. at some point in a, a battle report, would be that would be the big showdown. You knew that was the the top dogs throwing down in the in the studio back then. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's thoroughly enjoyable to listen to, and um, I've had a, a great time with it. And I, we haven't had an episode since December now. Uh, we've got another. I know. One. Yeah. Sorry. I, I took a break. Uh, and I, and, um, I take and I, a break every yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, unfortunately the, the YouTube channel and the podcast isn't my full time job. I wish it was. Otherwise, you would have a lot more content. But, um, yeah. unfortunately, I've got to work for a living, uh, yeah. sadly. But yeah, I've got, I've, I actually just recorded one, uh, what was it? Friday, Friday night. I recorded an episode with, uh, another guy, uh, Dave, uh, Gilson in Scotland talking about Epic Space Marine. So, yes. uh, there is one in the pipeline. And, um, yeah, the show is kind of evolving now. We had, we had great guests like 
of course, Andy Chambers, which is a fantastic person uh, who's more than happy to come on and talk about anything with us, which is really great. Um, so I'm really over, I'm really bowled over by his generosity of his time and his uh, knowledge and experience, and he wants to come on and talk to us, which is fantastic. And he's such a knowledgeable, not such a really smart and knowledgeable guy, you know. Isn't he just? Uh, he knows so much about so many different things, especially, and he can remember so much about those times as well. Mm. And he has a lot of uh, admiration for Jervis Johnson, who just left Games Workshop, actually. So the dream is to have Jervis and and Andy on at the same time talking about Epic Space Marine and 40K Second Edition at some point in the future. That would be just um, uh, the ultimate dream, I think, Wouldn't the dream team. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. my one – so when I worked at Games Workshop, so when I when I first got there, I knew lots of the names of people, obviously, because I've been a huge fan of the hobby for all a lot. Yeah. And I, I, I never got starstruck with anyone. So you'd meet people and like, you know, Jez Goodwin, you'd run into him. And well, I knew Jez beforehand a little bit. And so you'd sort of say hello and John Blanche and incredible people in the hobby and great. I never got starstruck. And there was one day I was in the canteen and I was queuing up with a tray full of food. And I just heard this voice behind me. And it, he said something like, these aren't the sausages that I like. And I sort of shuddered. I was like, oh my God, what's that? And, I said, and it was Jervis. And oh, I had right. no idea. Jervis's voice is one of the deepest voices you will ever hear in your life. It's like a <laughs> a, a rumbling volcano almost, <clears throat> like an underwater volcano. It's just this rumbling, deep noise. And it's just like, oh, no, this isn't quite the treacle sponge that I wanted either. And it's, <laughs> my knees weren't weak, and it was, I had sort of stopped myself from staring at him because oh, it was Jervis. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, but you know that was that was my first well first week, and uh, after that I learned he was a very thoroughly lovely person, and um, yeah. So I hope you do get him on your podcast um, uh, because he would be wonderful to hear from, and um, well with Andy as well, uh, yeah. yeah. What a, what a pair! Even though they weren't really a pair, but they were a pair. It was, uh, yes. Um, well, good luck on that, and I look for. Hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, the new episode of Crown of Command will already be out. So, I hope so, mate. Yeah, I hope so. Um, we're sort of evolving a little bit. We're trying to get. I'm trying to get other people's voices on the podcast too. So I'm asking other guys in the community from our Discord or from Facebook or whatever. To say, hey, if you've got an art, if you've got something like a segment you want to do, um, just you know, record it and send it in. I'll um, I'll edit into the show and we'll have that. But I think that's a great idea. I want to get more involvement from other people and you know, create it into something kind of like the D6 generation because like D6 generation when it was first out, it had kind of all these different segments in it, and I really enjoyed that because yeah. it had different perspectives from different people. It had you know interviews from different people. And yeah, I really enjoyed that part of that um, the show when it was uh, alive and kicking back in. Oh, that was uh, more than ten years ago now, about fifteen years ago when that was really um, high rolling. Then in the podcast <laughs> podcast world, yeah. And you don't know how you know you don't know how long these things, these ventures will go for. I don't know. You know, I don't have any sort of long term uh, prospects or plans or goals or anything for the podcast. It's just going to evolve and continue on for as long as people want to listen to it and as far as, as long as I want to make it. Yeah. And, um, and you know, like yourself maybe too, you know, you, you're doing it because you enjoy talking to people, you know, talking about the hobby, 
it's it's a hobby in itself for yourself you know what i mean i love it i, I it's it's one of yeah. the nicest things is actually talking to someone it doesn't matter if they've been in the hobby for 30 years or when you talk yeah. to someone and you just get that when you ask them about how they started you get this wonderful hit of enthusiasm they're like well I found it because I saw it here and I just fell in love with it and I wanted to paint it. I wanted to pick it up. I wanted to play with it. I wanted to do the thing. And it's just, it's, it's in fact, it gives me the hobby buzz to actually go on and paint myself. And that's, that's why. I, so in a way I do this for entirely selfish reasons, but um, <laughs> I, I do it for altruistic ones as well, because I, I think it's just so nice to hear how everyone from, all over the world, all different backgrounds, all different people, how they find it and what it means to them. It's just, it's uh, sort of, it's perpetually inspiring. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, going off on a slight tangent here, but I'm very proud that we've now got into a third series of My Life in Miniatures because it's, yeah, like I said, it's just, it, you get that, buzz from people and and it doesn't matter who it is it's just you talk to someone you you ask them about what they like and you just get this sort of wonderful wave of enthusiasm and then you know hearing about the hobby what it's like to be a hobbyist from australia where you know it's not on your doorstep and you don't have a warhammer store in every town and you know but you still manage to find that passion you, you well rather that passion existed and you found a way to exercise it and make it a, a part of your life and you've traveled from australia to japan and you still have it i mean i'm looking at you listeners will not be able to see this but josh and on his back wall there has lots of wonderful old boxes of warhammer art um on his wall and you know i, I look at those and i think wow that's it's wonderful they've traveled and this is the weird thing especially when you've worked at games workshop i know that those boxes were created by some people in lenton in nottingham and they've gone all over the world and they've done and they've inspired people to be creative to have fun to mm. make friends to and that's you know if if this podcast in a very small way helps to illustrate that then all the better i think yeah, and that's a good point, mate. Because um, you know, I was talking, I was talking to um, uh, Dave uh, on Friday about that too. Because he he suffered from depression, so the hobby was a, a great outlet outlet for him mm -hmm. to forget about his worries or troubles or whatever like that. And I think you know, for me, I was very socially awkward as a young guy. <clears throat> couldn't make friends very well. I, I couldn't really converse uh, socially very well. Yeah. You know, with other yeah. people, and I, I th it was only through gaming that I could, I could really be myself. You know what I mean? Like it's um, it's it's weird to say. Maybe it's a bit sad to say. I don't know. No, I don't <laughs> but, think it is. But yeah, but, something like that. I mean, you'd, you'd sort yeah, of yeah. It was, we're a bit of an odd bunch, aren't we? You know, you know. Let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, we're all weirdos. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. But yeah, I'm, I'm no, king, king of the weirdos in that respect. But yeah, um, but <laughs> yeah, I think it it definitely helped me. It definitely helped me. Uh, get my confidence up and talking to people, socializing, uh, gave me the, the social skills I needed and all that kind of stuff. Um, hey, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm horrible at maths. I'm not the most smartest guy, but bloody hell, Warhammer really got me into <laughs> maths, like doing, you know, very simple arithmetic, but it helped a lot as well in that respect as well. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. so there's many benefits to wargaming, even though people could very shallowly say, you know, sh- sh- um, in 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 a sense from a distance say, oh well, that's that's a it looks like a you know, a kid's game. It, you know, why are you playing it? My wife probably scratches her head and think, why is he why is he still playing obsessing over a game he did when he was still seventeen or something like that? Mm-hmm. But there's something about you know, war game, painting miniatures, collecting models, um, the whole, you know, social aspect of war gaming. It's a nice, quiet thing to do that people enjoy. And, and, and I think, well, I think actually in a weird way, lockdown helped with a little bit was people understanding that you can have a nice, quiet hobby that you can enjoy and it doesn't make you weird. It doesn't make you a freak. It doesn't make you anything, you know, anything like that it just means you're actually quite a well-rounded human being who enjoys something and can even if you get obsessive over it well as long as you're not upsetting anyone about it what does it matter you're having fun and that's like there are people in this world i guarantee who would love to be able to say that they had the same sort of hobby and they don't because they have they feel a need to pretend that they oh i'm above that i don't need a uh i don't need to paint little toy soldiers or have or play board games or play computer games i'm bigger but and it's like why well, actually why what just to have fun just in, why don't mm. why can't you just enjoy it like, yeah, yeah totally agree man. totally agree i think my father like i look at my father like you know my father didn't really have any hobbies and just watching tv was his thing mm-hmm. mate that would drive me absolutely nuts i'd go absolutely stir crazy if, if that was me yeah i couldn't do it you know i need yeah. to i need to be doing something be to be actively doing something you know with my hands you know that kind of stuff i'm that kind of person yeah um, it's a wonderful hobby as well because you can this has gotten entirely off on a tangent <clears throat> but we'll get back to you in a minute um but yeah, it's it's nice to have a hobby that you can do on your own quietly and privately, where you can just enjoy your, your own company and your own talent and your own creativity. But also that same hobby you can take out into the wider world as well. You can go to tournaments, you can go to gaming nights, you can you know join a Blood Bowl League or a Necromunda League or play some Underworlds tournaments or wh- whatever it might be. It's it, it's so flexible in that sense and uh, you know i as someone who you know as, uh, um you know i've got a kid on the way and i one of the things i want for her and i'm not ever going to pressure her to pick up a paintbrush and play with toy soldiers but if she wants to i'll totally support her but i just want her to have that hobby where she can just have fun however she wants to have fun and it's like well, this is perfect for that, but maybe golf is perfect for that. Maybe, you know, doing knitting is perfect for that. I don't know. But like, as long as she's got something that she can just get a a level of enjoyment from that is both, she can do it quietly, she can do it in public, she can do it, you know, wherever. And I think for a lot of people playing with toy soldiers, whether it's Games Workshop or Malifaux or War Machine or um infinity or whatever it might be it provides that in a wonderful sort of way yeah absolutely mate yeah we've got to really support hobbies i think hobbies are really important for people's 
mental health, um, personal development, I don't know, whatever it might be. You just need that zone out time, what just like listening to music or whatever, whatever it is, you know, that, that just gets you to cut off from everything outside, all the noise outside. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it does it does does a world of good. Meditation, whatever it is, you know, it doesn't have to be an actual hobby, hobby kind of thing. It could be kind of more of a, you know, in a spiritual kind of thing or whatever. I don't know. But, you know, painting for me, yeah, it just allows me to zone out and I'm just, you know, in that place where I just need to be, which I enjoy the most. Yeah. I wish I could do it forever. I wish I could do it all, all the time, mate. Yeah. Why can't Why can't I just work and just paint? <laughs> one day we'll get there. One day. It's, um, yeah. Now I feel like I've made myself the subject of this, and that's not correct. I should be making you the subject of this. No, 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 no. Don't, no, no. Don't, don't do that. This is your life in miniatures, though. So we're gonna. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to interviewing other people. <laughs> so, this, this is, is a, perfect. <laughs> so I did this. Um, I had. Greg Dan, uh, who does the Imperial Truth podcast, on my first season of doing this, and similarly in that, he uh, one point I felt he was interviewing me. Um, so we're going to move back. <laughs> um, we're going to move back to you, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that you've been working on recently. How are your high elves going? They're looking very nice, mate, in the cabinet. I must say, I'm very, very, very happy, and uh, uh, that the majority of that army is fully painted. So that's that's been a project for the last eighteen months or something like that, twelve months, eighteen months. Yeah. yeah. So um, how did that start again? Oh, that's right. That's I, I I started a challenge, and this is a great thing about and I don't know if you've experienced this at all. Other other listeners have, but uh, painting challenges have been a thing since COVID. We did a Crown of Command. Uh, sorry, the Call of the Crown. Mm-hmm. Let's get it right. The Call of the Crown painting challenge, which basically. Got a whole heap of guys in, um, a couple of the guys uh, in our in our Facebook community wanted to start up a painting challenge. I said, yeah, go for it. So we had a whole heap of people entering it and a, a load of armies were painted out of that during the 2020. So just at the start, like the, the height of COVID basically when people are in lockdowns and that kind of thing around the world. And that, you know, it's not a new thing. It's not a new concept. You know, painting challenges have been around through the old world army army challenge then yeah. and a few others. But um, other ones sort of cropped out out of that, cropped up out of that, like uh, the Cowabunga 40K second edition challenge. And there was a gathering of mighty painters, which I joined up because it was all about fourth edition. And uh, I thought, well, there's no better opportunity now than painting the high for this one. So that's how it all started, mate. And my sort of my first army ever that I ever painted when I was about seventeen. Yeah. And I got the fourth edition set, so it was basically going back in time and and doing it again, but doing it properly. Good. Well, and are you doing them? They're all white and crisp. And Absolutely. Oh, all, all all codex coloured, like the way that you know the guys in the studio painted them. I yeah. try to paint them exactly the same. So yeah. that's that's part of the pleasure of doing that. I think as well those retrospective paint paint jobs. Going back in time, you know, and um, trying to do it the way that the the boys did it in the studio. Yeah, well, I I mean, I envy you, and at the same time, the idea of painting a crisp white high elf still seems <laughs> because I remember what it was like back in the nineteen nineties. Well, the thing was, when I had mine, I couldn't paint white either to save my life, so I painted them all blue, That's all their all their cloaks in blue. So, um, and it's very very quick. Um, sort of a hack to painting white, and that is getting verdigris. Uh, that's the uh, Vallejo model color, 
game color, sorry, Vallejo game color paint um, called Verdigris. Just get that. It's like a very light, pale green color. Yeah. Use that as a base and just get some white paint to go over as an overlay on top of that. That's it. That's how I did mine. It's a bit of a painting hack. I, I, some other guy, a Swede, a Swedish guy, a Swedish painter, uh, Patrick, did the same thing with his high elves. And I thought, wow, that's such a good-looking white. I'm going to do the same thing. So I did the same thing and it worked perfectly. So yeah, there you go. Don't have to stress. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't give up on painting white. It's, it's achievable. Good. Well, I like it. Uh, yeah, any painting hack is always a welcome one. Um, yep. And as well as painting high elves, you're, you're still carrying on with your goblins. Is that right? Yep, still working the goblins. So I had the fourth edition goblin uh, spearmen to do, the night goblin archers to do. And that was part of the red axe uh, the battle for red axe red axe red axe pass if i can say it correctly uh that was scenario in the fourth edition high elf book that i wanted to recreate that's part of um another part of the aspect of the hobby that i really enjoy and i got to film it in a remote game um with matthias hedstrom from uh, uh, uh sweden so remote gaming is basically we started that during COVID too. It's like, you know, I've got some guy on, on Zoom or um, on Discord with a camera and they're looking at the table and they just tell me where to move the units and I just move them and they roll the dice on their end and we play games that way because that was the only way we could play during yeah. the COVID era. And and also because these games are so niche in Japan, it's very hard to find players uh, to play, you know, fourth edition, fifth edition Warhammer Fantasy. So yeah. that was one way of doing it. And um so yeah, that was all part of that, mate. Doing all the goblins for that and um, getting them done. Nice. Well, that's great. And out of your high elves and goblins, do you have a favourite miniature out of those? Uh, for the high elves, definitely um, Tyrion. Uh, oh, I just love that model. Yeah. You know, I was really looking forward to, of all the models I, I had to paint. That was the one I was looking forward to the most. Nice. And the goblins, uh, Grom the Paunch. I really love that model, but I painted that a while back now. And just some of the metal metal goblins, which are very very hard to find mm. nowadays in the second hand market, really hard to find and very expensive if you can find them. But usually, no one wants to part with them because they're so rare. Yeah. So painting some of those are really really nice because it's very it's like a rare occasion that I could paint them. Yeah. Cool. Well, Grom the Paunch was in one of my very first ever White Dwarves when he was released. So nice. That makes me feel thoroughly old. Well, <laughs> Josh, we have taken up so much of your valuable time i know it's very early in the morning there and it's very late at night here so i'm gonna wrap up with our last two questions first off what's your favorite paint uh vallejo definitely but but the actual color yeah yeah, give me a color (laughs) (laughs) well that's a difficult one um yeah Uh, let's see. Well, I th- I'm going to have to go blue. I, I think it's going to have to be a Prussian blue, Vallejo model color, Prussian blue. Nice. Good. Any particular reason? Uh, it's just a hue of blue that I really like. It's got a very subtle color, color to it. It's got a bit of gray in there maybe. Uh, it's a bit subdued, so it's not really bright and um, like visceral. It's kind of got that sort of subdued sort of look to it, so I like painting that kind of color on my dwarves or um, my models. To give that sort of a nice, uh, yeah, sort of a soft softness to it, I think. Yeah. Cool. That is a very good answer. Um, and then final question. If you could paint 
any miniature next. And it could be literally anything. It could be something that doesn't even exist in the real world. It could be straight out of your brain or something you can pick up off eBay or or the shelves of a games workshop tomorrow or any other miniature store. Um, what what would you like to paint next? Ah, well, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I would like to paint a... Um, I'd like to paint, and this is like like pretty much like an army project. If I could go back in time, or if I could get someone to recreate it for me, would be like a road trader squat squat army because it's one of those holy grail armies that, uh, again, are very hard to get hold of. They're very expensive. Uh, they're quite elusive on the second hand market as well. So if I could go, if I could, if I could find someone to say, "Hey, just make these models for me in metal. These are the designs. Just go for it." As a, as a project, uh, I would love to do that because um, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with these, but I used to own I, I own some unreleased models back in the day when I worked for Games Workshop in the studio mm-hmm. of squats, and there were squats uh, slayers. You can find images online that they're they're circulating. They were they must have produced a handful of these and only a few lucky people got them. But there and there were like a squat warrior that was featured in Dark Millennium. Um, there was two images of those. And there were some squat uh, slayers. It's like cyber slayers. Yeah, cool, yeah. And, um, and stupid me, I traded them uh, for something else. And it was so, it, it, you know, I'm kicking myself still about doing that. Even though the, the, there were obviously just a handful of models, I couldn't make an army out of them, but I would love to be able to paint those uh, Alan Perry, Michael Pell- Perry models again uh, if I could. So, yeah, a missed opportunity, mate. Uh, well, hey, he is hoping that that opportunity presents itself to you again at some point in the future. Um Josh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, I wish you all the very best of luck with the Crown of Command podcast um, and with your high elves and goblins that you're working on at the moment and everything in the future. Um, Thank you very, very much for joining us on My Life in Miniatures. Mate, I really appreciate you asking me on. Uh, It's been a really great chat. I'm really glad to have met you yourself and we've got to have you back on the Crown of Command at some point, mate. That'd be really good. I'd love to do it. Willing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Let me know. Um, but yeah thank you very much for joining us thanks again mate thank you very much bye bye well there you have it folks what a wonderful conversation that was I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it Uh, it was great to talk to Josh Uh, I've been calling him Josh Van Z I noticed in the intro Uh, obviously he's not actually Van Z that's uh, the name he displays on his Instagram but uh, I I should be calling him Josh Van Zed I think, because of being British, but ZZ, where do you stand on that? Um, I don't care. Um, <laughs> no, I do. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Z person normally, but for some reason I just read it as Z. I don't know what they do in Australia with that one. Um, but yeah, Z or Z, who knows? Um, yes, as mentioned at the beginning, you can find Josh on Instagram, uh, the underscore crown underscore of underscore command underscore podcast. Uh, you can go onto Spotify, to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, onto YouTube and look for the Crown of Command podcast. Uh, you will find him there. Um, and also, uh, I will put in links in the description of this podcast to the Facebook and Discord groups as well. 
Um, yeah, what a joy to to speak to Josh and um, you know someone who's so passionate about the the hobby and is really helping to sort of forge a community out there in Japan and uh, uh, out in the east, I suppose, with Australia as well. And you know, it's, it's really interesting to me. It still is to hear how everyone gets into this hobby and. Um, I really like Josh's story. I hope you did too. I hope you've had lots of fun doing some hobbying while listening to us uh, rabbit and ramble on there. Um, I hope I didn't sound too sloshed. Um, I wasn't. I really wasn't. I had a, I had a couple of beers and then, you know, I had like a couple of hours before the recording as well. But um, I wasn't slurring my words quite as bad as I thought it would be. Um, but yes, all very good. Um, I've been looking at the Las Vegas Open reveals. Uh, I've made some quick notes which I shall run through now. Um, the new Space Marines, um, as Exhibit would say, I hear you like missiles, so we put missiles on your missiles. Um, yeah, they're fun. <laughs> they're a bit OTT, but I kind of like Space Marines being a bit OTT these days. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd grab them. I like the claws on the Dreadnought too. They look nice. Um, Vashtor and his box. I think Vashtor is a stunning mini- miniature. I think he's sinister and weird and creepy and uh terrifying i was a little underwhelmed about what came in the box with him i i I think you know we'd all want a whole host of new sort of dark mechanicum gribblies and monsters and things like that but it's a good box it's uh, all decent i mean i've used venom crawlers and obliterators before they're they're great um more witch elves for warhammer underworlds yeah I mean, they look really nice. They look beautiful, of course they do. But, I mean, I, I, I wasn't overwhelmed by them. Uh, I'll tell you what I was overwhelmed by. The new Seraphon look phenomenal. Um, I really like the look of the actual sort of the lizard men um, and the little skinks on their peculiar dinosaurs. It must be such a joy when you're a miniature sculptor when someone says, fancy doing us a dinosaur? You're like, yep. Doing it, fine, happy, good. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Uh, the new Warcry stuff looks really cool. Um, I need to spend a bit more time looking at the individual miniatures, but they, you know, as ever, Warcry warbands look pretty damn good. Um, Cerberus coming to plastic for Horus Heresy. Yeah, great. Um, kind of expected it sooner rather than later. Um, Kill Team, the new box, um, that's a really cool looking box. Uh, I think the Dark Eldar look really sinister and terrifying. And I think, you know, as, as this episode of the podcast has been all about nostalgia, um, seeing the Adeptus Arbites or Arbites, I don't know how, how do you pronounce it? I always said Adeptus Arbites, but um, yeah, I think they're great. I think they look really, really cool. Uh, I'm very, very happy to see them back and to see those models, which are absolutely stunning. Um, So, yeah, overall, I think a really good set of reveals. Uh, It's going to be yet another year of Warhammer where we're all very happy and excited. Um, But, yeah, I think that pretty much should wrap up our podcast for today. A huge thanks again to to Josh. I'm going to say it once like this. Josh Van Zed, just in case that's the correct way of doing it. as I mentioned, do give the Crown of Command podcast a listen. I love interviewing other podcasts on this because, um, like he said at one point, it felt like he was interviewing me. But um, no, it was it was a joyous um, discussion, really. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, uh, I've got another one recorded. Uh, it might be the last of those sort of regular ones for a little while. We'll see, we'll see. 
Uh, but that will be coming out, uh, barring my schedule suddenly becoming overloaded, that will be coming out next week. So, once again, thank you very much for listening to another episode of My Life in Miniatures, and have a lovely, wonderful weekend and week ahead. Get some great hobby in, lick your brushes, spill some paint, enjoy yourselves. Have a good one.